Hello to all of you. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I am seeking to give this message as the oracles of God. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are seeking to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of us what he is wanting to say to one another. And in this case, I'm addressing those around the world and the body of Christ. And so I want to share with you where the Holy Spirit has been leading me in the Word of God in this past week. What he is seeking to say to the body of Christ in particular. And of course, there are many who in the foreknowledge of God will hear this message. They may not even attend or know anything about a church or God. Whatever your background, you are welcome to listen to this message. This week, I will share with you the passages that I received. I just briefly meditate for about a half an hour on the passage, and then right after, I share with you. Now, today I was meditating for a half an hour, and I was led by God to Zechariah 13. So I am going to begin by sharing from this particular passage, but I have received other passages this week as well that are related to Zechariah 13. I do this by the casting of lots in reverence before God, where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth out of the whole Bible. I also have felt recently that I was to begin to share from the book of Revelation and have already shared uh, up to chapter 2 on the second church. Um, there's Ephesus and then there's Smyrna. And I will continue possibly to incorporate that into this, but I felt a real burden that I was to share from Zechariah 13. It is a very important passage for this hour to understand. So I will begin by reading Zechariah chapter 13. And many people in their natural mind when they read this passage will find it very mysterious and hard to understand. But the Holy Spirit has caused me to have understanding on the Word of God and revelation on the Word of God that is important for you in the body of Christ in this particular hour to hear and understand. And so I will begin reading Zechariah chapter 13. This is a prophecy, I should add, of the future, just before Christ returns and immediately what begins to take place after he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom upon the earth. It says this, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet 
prophesy. Then his father and his mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. For thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I'm no prophet. I am an husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Father, I thank you that by your Holy Spirit you will speak through me to point men to you, that I would be hidden, that they would have true revelation in their hearts of who you are of the greatness of your being of love from what I share here in Jesus' holy name. This passage was written approximately 494 B.C., well before the time when Christ came to the earth, about 500 years before. It is a prophecy that spans a number of periods of time, including foretelling of the betrayal of Jesus Christ. You can look at it this way. When you are viewing scenery and there's a canyon in between, and you may see something before the canyon on a hill, and then there's a hill beyond, but you can't see the canyon in between. So it is with prophecy that you have one period of time, and then it spans over to a great vast distance of time, and you're seeing both things. And that is what is happening in some of the passages here, which I will explain more so as we get into this. Also, I want to make you aware that when I am sharing this message today, it is on Saturday, April the 4th, 
which is the day of Passover. And it is also earlier on today and in my time where I am on Pacific Coast time at about 457 that there was the full blood moon. Now, I'm not here to get into explaining the blood moons, but there is great significance in the fact that there has been two blood moons in 2014 and immediately after another two blood moons, including an eclipse over the North Pole just before this blood moon that happened this day today, early in the morning on Saturday where I am. And then there's another blood moon on September the 13th. And these do have great significance because they are falling on the feasts of Israel. This is something that is very rare, and I don't have time, I'm not getting into that aspect of things here. I want to focus on Zechariah chapter 13 and emphasize that even here we have a passage that is so relevant to Passover and to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And of course, tomorrow being Sunday is the celebration of the resurrection of the I am that I am, Jesus Christ from the dead. In this passage of scripture, we read, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. I want to explain to you the difference between sin and uncleanness from the original meaning of these words. This meaning of sin here has the understanding of offense, of committing an act of offense. It is more the committing of an act that is offensive to God. And of course, whatever is offensive to God always has a negative effect on others around us and possibly also offends them as well. But I want to give you a deeper understanding of the next word, which is the word uncleanness. Now, this word uncleanness, if you go back to the root meaning of this word in the Hebrew, and I'm going back to the letters from the time of 2,500 BC, which are picture symbols that give the greatest depth of meaning into the root meaning of these Hebrew words. And the two letters that are in picture symbols, the first one is the symbol of a sprout from which the letter N has developed into the Latin years later. I, you can go to my site at Love Realized and see the progression of all of these letters where you can learn the Hebrew alphabet in the ancient symbol letters and also in all the various stages that eventually evolved into the other letters in Greek and in Latin and in Roman and spread out to all the languages, most of the languages of the world, such as Russian and so on, and English. This letter, the first letter, is the symbol of a seed sprout. And it has the understanding of continuance. And the next letter is the symbol of the entrance to a tent door and has the understanding of movement back and forth. And so the root meaning of uncleanness has the understanding of movement back and forth that just never gets anywhere. You're going in and you're going out. You're going in and you're going out. In other words, you are trying to find fulfillment in your being by pursuing something and entering into something, and then you're finding there's no fulfillment, and so you come out again, and you try something else, and then it never works. And so you're in a 
cycle of choices that is not constructive unto life for you personally or for those around you. It is like a black hole in outer space. It's like there's a void in your being and you're trying to fill that void that was only made to be satisfied by being filled with the Spirit of God when one receives the mercy of God by repenting and asking forgiveness and receiving God's power to forgive sins through his perfect atoning work in Jesus Christ. And so this understanding of uncleanness is an understanding of a state of being, an innate state of being that always is making destructive choices because of grasping to fulfill something, to enter into something that is fulfilling and never finding that fulfillment. It is like a black hole in outer space that can never be satisfied and pulls everything in around it in a destructive way. It is an innate nature that always ends up in a state that is not fulfilling to oneself or to those around them. It is a lying vanity, as it mentions in Jonah. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Somehow there's the delusion to believe that temporal things around us, even though they may satisfy temporarily, somehow will fill the void in our being, but they never do. It is only temporary. It is not a satisfaction that goes on to greater enlargement and greater satisfaction. It is a satisfaction that leaves one all the more empty, so that one is more desperate to try to fill the void in their being and thus becomes more and more destructive in, towards themselves and those around them. So sin is the result of this uncleanness being carried out in choice that brings offense. And the Lord is saying here that in the last days, he will open a fountain for sin and uncleanness. The innate tendency to be this way will be cleansed away. This fountain is their Messiah. There's an old hymn that says, There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. And the word Emmanuel is another name for the Messiah, which means God with us. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. This is speaking of the time. When the Messiah returns. And Zechariah, this book here, is a very prophetic book. And the chapter just before chapter 13 actually foretells in a very significant way about the time when they will see their Messiah. In verse 10, it says this in Zechariah 12. 
and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now, the me here is referring to God. It is God that is speaking in this passage. And he says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him, that is their Messiah, God in personage in the time and space realm, the one true God, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And I will not go on to describe anything more about this, except to say that the context of Zechariah 12 is describing how Israel's military might is finally broken by the Antichrist system and armies surrounding her, so that two-thirds of the city is carried away captive, and one-third only remains. It is also discussed in this passage that we are going to be, uh, that we are, that is our theme chapter in Zechariah 13. And so they are cornered because they are broken of their own self-sufficiency and of trusting in their self. They are cornered to a place where all that's left is to turn to God and to cry out to his mercy and to trust in him. And it is that time that the Messiah returns from the heavens with ten thousands of his saints, as it says in Jude, in the New Testament, a quote from the book of Enoch, and he shall return with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon the earth and to set up his kingdom. And we know also that it is prophesied here in Zechariah, and I won't go into where that is, it's one of the chapters nearby here, that the Mount of Olives will split in half when the Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. Do you know that they've discovered a major earthquake fault? in the last, I don't know if it's 10 or so years, going through the Mount of Olives. And it describes in Zechariah here about how this mountain was, in fact, it is in Zechariah chapter 12 that it describes the splitting apart of the Mount of Olives and the changes in geography as the Messiah sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives with ten thousands and thousands of his saints. And so they will look upon him whom they have pierced. That is God speaking. And this will happen as he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And they as a whole nation will then know who their true Messiah is and will become part of his corporate bride, the core of his corporate bride, the very core of who God is seeking. He is seeking a corporate bride from every tribe and nation and tongue and from every background, but the very core and essence of it will be those that are from the nation of Israel. We, the Gentiles, will be part of the commonwealth of Israel, of those that have come into marriage and union with their Messiah. Now we go on in Zechariah 13 here, and we read this. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. 
And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. This seems like somewhat of a mysterious passage. So there is even over the whole land this unclean spirit that I've already described that will be cleansed from the very being of people. An unclean spirit that can take on a religiosity that has ritual but no real intimate relationship of fellowship with God. Ritualism has replaced the reality of an intimate and deep relationship with God. And it is the unclean spirit, the tendency to try to find fulfillment in our own self-sufficiency and actually believe we are pleasing God in what we are doing. But in our hearts, there is no intimate relationship with God because we have not recognized the being of God's love which is ultimately manifested in holiness, out of which springs the manifestation of his mercy. The being of God is love. What is love? I I will briefly describe this here. Love, the highest form of love, which is the love that that is who God is, for it says in the word of God in 1 John that God is love more than once. And it is talking about this highest form of love, which in the Greek is called agape. It is far more than just a feeling. It doesn't mean that it doesn't include feeling, but it is far more than that. Love is a quality of being that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporary gratification. It transcends time. Time in the sense of seeking immediate fulfillment. This love, who is who God is, is always choosing the highest lasting good. It is first in its innateness of being like a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to love, this quality that always chooses the highest lasting good. This love, in other words, has integrity. It is totally pure. It is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love, which is that which is always constructive on a greater meaning and purpose without the slightest trace of corruption in it. That would be like the nature that I've described to you that's unclean, that is always making wrong choices because it is trying to find fulfillment in independence of the Creator. You see, even science, the second law of thermodynamics, says that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of greater and greater disorder to complete destruction and chaos and meaninglessness. And when we are in our heart independent of who God is, even though we may be trying in our religiosity to justify that independence. 
what happens is we end up in this state where there's not life within us. There's only hate. There's only that which does not bring life to others, that does not bring meaning and destiny and purpose to others, nor onto the which then points unto God and brings glory unto God, the highest lasting good. This aspect of love is the defensive aspect of the being of God. It is the integrity of his love, which is his holiness. Holiness in the original Hebrew has the deepest root meaning is that it is complete purity without corruption. It is the foundation from which springs God's being of love and creativity that can continue forever and ever in greater and greater enlargement of creativity without, the, without an ounce of corruption. It is the foundation from which springs the mercy of God. In other words, God's being is so great in his love that he has within him not only the capacity but the reality and always did to, without violating the integrity of his love, become a perfect atoning sacrifice, absorb judgment upon himself so that he could create for his creation free-willed beings that are not mere robots. It could make choices to receive his forgiveness and come into greater and greater fellowship with him. I don't have time to get into the depth of the being of God's love. I, I am writing a book on these things that goes into great depth and understanding. But I want to share with you briefly here that God is love and that that love is manifested. And what you could say for illustration's sake is a good illustration is an ultimate negative from which springs the ultimate positive. The negative symbol represents foundation. It is this integrity of God's love that requires judgment against all that is contrary. It also represents cutting off all that is contrary. So it's a negative symbol it's representing foundation. Out of that comes the positive, which is represented in the cross. It is the ultimate positive. Because God is so creative and so pure in his love that he can transcend the integrity of his being that requires judgment with the power to provide mercy and forgiveness, to be the very source of forgiveness, because in his being was this quality that was not just a mere capacity, but a reality, always was, that he had was a perfect atoning sacrifice. That's why it does say in the book of Revelations, I don't have the right chapter, I think it's chapter 18, it says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. In other words, the atoning work of Christ on the cross in the reality of God's being happened even before the plans for this world that he created were laid. It was always within his being to be able to provide forgiveness, for only God can forgive. Because he has such an ultimate perfection of love that he can actually transcend the integrity of his being so that he could actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice, actually suffer more than you, a mere creature, 
and humble himself more than you, a mere creature. That is his love for you as an individual and for those that would choose to receive his love. In the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who was pierced through his wrists and through his side on the cross so that you could be reconciled to God. But from the very time of Adam and Eve, there was this message and this understanding that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness, of assurance of mercy and forgiveness, so that if you repent, you can be reconciled to God and receive that mercy and that forgiveness. And we are celebrating today the Passover. Do you know that when the Jewish people killed the Passover lamb. I'm not sure of the exact time, but I believe it was killed at around three o'clock. And at that very same hour, Christ was on the cross and gave up the ghost. And that's when there was the great earthquake and the whole heavens became dark. And you have historical writers from other parts of that area that have that actually witnessed this darkness that knew nothing even about the event, but said, wow, there was this great darkness. This was no fairy tale. This actually happened, this great darkness at 3 p.m. when Christ finally gave up his spirit unto the Father, which is just God in government beyond the time and space realm. He is God in government in the time and space realm. For those that believe, we don't believe in three gods. There's one God, and God could not be almighty if he couldn't be an intelligent, conscious personage ruling beyond time and space, and if he couldn't be an intelligent, conscious personage ruling in time and space in his Son, which is the full expression of the Father. The word Son means full expression of the Father. And filling all things by his Holy Spirit in personage as well, being able to be everywhere at the same time. And if God could not assure forgiveness and mercy and destiny, it would imply that he created a creation without, a, without purpose or destiny or meaning, which would imply he's imperfect. The evidence that God is the one true God is that he can assure to you forgiveness and mercy because he has such a perfection of love that was from the very beginning. Before the infinite past, he's always had this within his being, the power to forgive, to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And it was manifested in the time and space realm in the very one and only expression of himself ruling within this realm, which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this happened. So when this message was given back before the flood, there were men that came into close relationship with God, that had such a close relationship with God, such as Enoch, such an intimate relationship with God, that if you read the book of Enoch, which is one of the valid books, it isn't in the Bible, but it has a lot of validity to it when you discover all they found out about it. This book of Enoch is quoted in the Bible. And Enoch, when he was 300 some odd years old, had such a close relationship with God that he was translated without seeing death into the very heavens to be eternally with God. This also happened to Elijah and others. 
And there's coming a time when those that are on the earth at this time and have a close and an intimate relationship with God, the one true God, Elohim, the Almighty's one, through the full expression of himself into this world and his son, will also experience translation without death into the very presence of God. Some people call it the rapture, whatever you want to tag it with as far as a name. It is foretold in the scriptures that this will happen. Now, I am just getting into talking in Zechariah 13 here about the unclean spirit being taken out of the land. And I got into the being of God and all of this so that one, others that do not have such a background could have greater understanding. This is going to happen as the Lord returns as described in the chapter before where they look on him whom they have pierced. This unclean spirit, what is behind it, is a false religious spirit, and it even comes in the manifestation of those that want to claim to be prophets and to prophesy. It seems there will be many people in the last days that will want to be prophets and prophesy, but they have an unclean spirit. They are doing it for their own desire to be looked up to, or whatever the motive is. The motive could be just self-sufficiency, that they want to be someone that pleases God. It doesn't have to be that they're a prophet or trying to be a prophet. But they are, you can justify a relationship with God and say, oh, I keep the Ten Commandments. I do this, I do that. But you can end up making the Ten Commandments an idol where your focus is totally on trusting in yourself. And if one is continually trusting in their own sufficiency to please God, where is their heart with God? Is it not a deception to cover up what's really in one's heart? It can be. The problem with people that are merely trusting in outward performance to please God is that they have ignored the being of God in his holiness. First, the integrity of his love that requires judgment. And they have ignored the being of God in his mercy that comes out of that, this ultimate negative and positive that in the natural causes electricity, that breaks the hard shell that forms around the nucleus of an atom. This hard shell that is spinning continually, forming hardness, is a failure to be aware of the negative and the positive. It is when there is connection with the negative and the positive in the natural that that shell is broken and there is the flow of life and of power. And likewise, God never intended the Ten Commandments to be something that we focused on as our main focus, as a focus on our own self-sufficiency and trust 
to be able to perform before God. The Ten Commandments was given. And it explains in the scripture that there was different purposes for the Ten Commandments. It was given to all the more protect the nation from corruption because they were carrying a pure seed that would bring forth the Messiah. It was given all the more to make one aware of their need for the mercy of God in order to fulfill those things out of a true and a pure heart. Cain brought his performance before God and it wasn't accepted. And the reason it wasn't accepted is that he was offended at the holiness of God because of the consequences of the curse. This is my speculation. I think it's probably a lot. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true. So he's offended at the consequences of God's holiness. So then in his heart, God becomes an enigma, an enigma. Kind of distant. He doesn't. He's trying so hard to do all of this hard work and he's lost sight of the fact that in the holiness of God is the quality that can contain wholeness. Because it's the holiness of God, the integrity of his love that will not allow corruption. So what can we, can we trust a God that is not totally pure and holiness? No. What is ultimately trustworthy is God in his holiness. Because it is in holiness that there is no corruption and therefore it is in holiness that we find wholeness of being. We find the wholeness that fills the void that can only be filled by God, by his spirit, when we accept the holiness of God. That we need his mercy. It is only when we recognize the holiness of God, we recognize it is not within ourselves to trust in ourselves to have sufficiency before God. We recognize he is too pure and too holy. And we humble ourselves in awe of God and cry out unto him and bring our weaknesses to him instead of hiding our weaknesses from him like Adam and Eve did by trying to put on that cloak of leaves. It wasn't until they came open to the voice of God that was seeking them and said, yes, I've sinned. Acknowledge their sin before God, that God clothed them with the representation of his atoning sacrifice in animal skins. Remember, Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so there is a relationship that develops with God where one can know deep fellowship and intimacy because they delight in the holiness of God because they recognize that in the holiness of God is contained wholeness, is contained unlimited life and power that cannot be corrupted, that can go on to greater and greater goodness out of which springs God's mercy. If he's that good, surely it implies that he has the power to be good enough 
to provide destiny to his creation, that he must have the power to forgive. And indeed, they recognized that in God there was the power to forgive. And I could go into a lot of things here, but this is not the time to get into a lot of answering of detailed questions. I am not going to do that here. So, what I want to share with you in this passage of Zechariah is what is mentioned in the next passages. And I have... Um, some brief notes that I made in this half hour. And I'm, ex I'm just going to go into um, verse 3 here. It says, And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. This is the way it will be after the Messiah has come back to the earth. There will be such a love for truth and for integrity in people's hearts before God that they will not stand for anything that is false, that is phony. They will have such a zealous love for God in their relationship with God that it would be as if if their son was to feign himself as a prophet before them, they would literally kill their own son. That is the kind of zeal and love they will have in their intimate relationship with God, that there will be no toleration for mere religiosity without a heart relationship with God, for mere performance, for wrong and false motives. When the Messiah returns, that is the kind of relationship there will be. And we go on. So what this is, this is very important, this understanding here. God wants us even now to have such a relationship with him that we prove all things and hold fast to what is true. That is what the word of God says that we're to do. Nowadays, there are many people that are giving prophecies presumptuously. There are many people in different movements that are seeking with wrong motives in their ministry. Christ himself said that many would come in his name saying, Lord, have we not cast out devils in your name? Have we not done many miracles in your name? And the Lord will say unto them, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. When people have a wrong motive to be in ministry, God may allow them to have the gifts of the spirit that can do healings and so on. But if they are only seeking for their little kingdom to be built and people to look up onto them. Where is their heart in their relationship with God? I have heard of big ministries that because certain miracles weren't happening, they tried to falsely produce those miracles. That is just absolutely evil. 
in the sight of God. Such people are not the servants of Christ. And maybe they can repent and be delivered from that. Who knows? God is calling us as his people in these days to have genuine revival in our churches. Not stuff that's puffed up and made up. Or that we are trying to bring about. We can have conferences about how to pray. We can have conferences and meetings about this and about that. But what is God calling his people to enter into in relationship with him today? When we are in a gathering of believers, are we conscious of Christ in our midst? Are we more conscious of one another? Are we more conscious of the one that's doing the ministry? Is our identity more on the one that's doing the ministry and in one another than our relationship with God? What is the answer to mere performance? The answer is to enter into the genuine fear of God. And what is the genuine fear of God? The genuine fear of God is to recognize, choose to recognize the being of God and be receptive to his being in his holiness first, which humbles us and brings us to the place of being utterly aware of our utter need for dependency upon God and not on our own sufficiency. It brings us to the place where we are in utter awe before him. As it says in Ecclesiastes, I believe it's probably chapter 5. I could try to turn to it, but I... I don't know if it's worth trying to turn to it. It says, when you come into the house of God, be more ready to hear than to speak. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let's not be in a place when we gather together in the body of Christ where we haven't learned to humble ourselves under his mighty hand out of entering into the genuine fear of God that is being in that place of humility and stillness before God where we become in awe of who he is. It is far better to start a meeting where the leadership gets on their faces before God, where the congregation gets on their faces and on their knees before God and humbles themselves and learns to enter in to a true breaking of the hardness that so tends to come into all of our hearts by coming into that consciousness of that ultimate negative and positive, which is the holiness of God and the awesomeness of his great mercy to us as individuals and to the body of Christ as well. To the point that the hardness breaks, that there's melting, that there's a true rending and a circumcision in the heart. The Word of God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last verse, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. That's what it means in the original Greek. It says, whenever it shall turn to the Lord in the King James, but it's actually referring to the heart, and it's saying, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. The veil of hardness in our heart. And when that veil breaks, we open up with the eyes of our heart, and we begin to see God for who he really is, not merely intellectually, but out of a deep turning in the heart, there is revelation 
light comes into our heart and we begin to see some aspects of the glory and the majesty of his love because we've learned to curb back our own self-initiations that are filled with our own ways and our own pride and our own self-sufficiency. We've learned to wait on him to enter into the Sabbath rest. The word Sabbath means cessation. And the word idol means the opposite. It is us trying to form our own image of who we want God to be. Our own self-initiated ways that will carve out our own image of God, just like Cain carved out a false image of who God is. He saw God as a dictator in his holiness, as someone to be feared, and didn't see the goodness behind the holiness of God. He didn't recognize that he needed the mercy of God. He would became merely religious and mere performance like people. Many people who merely perform the Ten Commandments but have no heart relationship with God because they refuse to come to the place of letting the pride in their heart be broken and of coming into a true circumcision in their heart that will bring them into a relationship of intimacy with God. But the time is coming in the future when the Messiah returns, where there will be such a zeal for intimacy with God that is pure, that is without hypocrisy, that there will be a zeal that, as it were, would literally kill one's own son if they feigned themselves in false religiosity before God as a prophet or whatever else. Such will be the relationship when the Messiah returns. And then we read in verse 4 this. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be shamed every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. It seems there will come a time when there will be many people feigning themselves as prophets, even wearing rough garments to deceive. When they come into this intimate relationship with God, it will be totally different. And I wrote this in commentary on verse 4. When the Lord returns and this is removed, there will be such a love for, for integrity and truth before God and man that even if the son of parents falsely prophesied, they would kill him immediately out of love for a true relationship with God that will not tolerate falsehood. Okay, I just... I really didn't need to say that. I already said all of that, but that's okay. That's brought out. But we see here that there will be such a love relationship with God in God's people when the Messiah returns that they will not want anything to do with being looked up to. They will not want anything to do with being anything before people. They will want to be in a place of hiding that will allow the glory of God. They will be ashamed, every one of his vision. There won't even, they will be told, I don't want to share my vision. I just want the glory of God. Do I need to share what I've seen? No, I don't want to share what I've seen. I just want God's glory to be seen. But he shall say, I am no prophet. There will be no desire to be anything of entity before people, but only to be in love with God. 
And so instead, they will have such a relationship with God that instead they'll say, I'm no prophet. I'm an husbandman, that is a farmer, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. No desire to be something. I just want to be in a humble relationship with God. I don't want to be anything. I just love my relationship with God so much. I don't want to be anything. I just want to be in relationship with him. I don't need to be anything before people. I don't want to be seen. I want to be seen in my relationship with God is pleasing, and that's all. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. What is this saying here? These people will have such a relationship with their Messiah, the one on whom they looked. As I mentioned in Zechariah 12, they shall look upon me, that's God speaking, whom they have pierced. And they will have such a relationship with their Messiah that their identity will be so deep in the Messiah that they will see themselves as identified in his rejection. He came onto his own, it says in Isaiah 53, and his own received him not. They will also identify with that. There's a verse in the scripture that says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. That's the identity that they will have. They will want to identify with the Messiah that came onto his own and his own received him not, that was wounded in the house of his friends. And they will say, I want to experience his wounds because in it I experience such fellowship when I experienced the wounds of his rejection and identity with his rejection who came onto his own and his own received him not, I experienced the deepness of the intimacy of fellowship with God. As Paul said, that I might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. It is in identity with our relationship with God where we delight to be hid with Christ and God that we know intimacy with him. There's a scripture that says, ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Dead to what? Dead to the influences of the things in this natural realm and this world where people want to look up to us, this or that. That doesn't mean anything anymore. It never can. It's like we become a dead person to it. It doesn't. We're alive in our identity onto God and our identity onto all the temporal things of this world which are vain, which are lying vanities, which ultimately do not bring fulfillment. We are dead unto. says in 1 John, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And it goes on to say, that he that does the will of God abides forever. A true love relationship with God is only possible the more we come into a total dying 
to the things of this world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. The, the secret to true love is to come in to such a relationship with God. This is what this is describing, is the intimate relationship that the nation of Israel will have, and also those that are the commonwealth of Israel, the Gentiles, that have been joined to be the corporate bride with Israel around Christ in the last days. And then we have in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Here we are going into another time period. This is the time period that is prophesying of when Christ is betrayed by Judas. It is a prophecy 500 years before Christ came in detail of what would happen that was fulfilled. So it says here, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The shepherd here is speaking of Christ the Messiah and against the man that is my fellow or the man, the man that is my fellow, this is God speaking, that is my close one that I have fellowship with, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, smite the Messiah. And the sheep shall be scattered. And we know the disciples were scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And we know that God's hand was turned upon the little ones. They, you know, this could be Mary and the others. They experienced some very difficult times. In fact, Christ said to Mary, a sword shall pierce through thine own heart and the motives of many will be revealed. Truly, she experienced the circumcision of her heart when she saw her only son on the cross. She had to come out of an identity in the natural with her natural son into an identity of relationship with God. And it was a painful process. But let's face it, everyone in the world suffers. The question is, when we suffer, will it shake us out of identity to self and to identity with relationship with God? Will it bring us to the place where we were cornered to cry out unto God and to receive his perfect atoning work on the cross, to receive his mercy and forgiveness and find ultimately destiny and meaning in our lives? And so we have this prophecy of the disciples being scattered. And then it goes to a time in the future that has not happened yet, where it is prophesying again, as it did in Zechariah chapter 12, of the time when the nation of Israel will be surrounded by the nations and their military might broken, and two-thirds of them will be destroyed in Jerusalem at least. And it says this, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. It describes this third also in Zechariah 12. 
it's not 12, it's nearby. I believe it's also in chapter 12. I'm not going to try to find it. What is happening here? I will go on to read verse 9 to explain what is happening. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. And I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Here we see again that God's purpose is to bring forth a corporate bride that has a true intimate relationship with, with himself, identity with himself. The process is painful. Two-thirds that may have been very religious, may maybe they're atheists too, two-thirds will not turn to God, possibly, and that may be why they die. But there is a third that through this trial is shaken out of their own self-sufficiency and religious ways to a place where they cry out and turn to God from the depths of their heart and the veil is broken and they come into seeing who God really is and receiving his mercy and his grace. It's a purifying process. And it's described here as the refining of silver and of gold. And you know that when gold is smelted, all the dross comes to the surface, it's exposed. And when it's exposed, one of two things can happen in our lives as individuals. We can, all these negative reactions come out of us that we didn't even know were in us, that we know are so unrighteous and displeasing to God. And the enemy can come along and say, see, that's who you are, and try to make you believe that that's who you are, so that you put your identity in believing that you're an evil, useless person. And if you believe that, you will not receive the mercy of God. Or you can, through that trial, recognize that you can cry out to God that he is so good that he can forgive you, that you can be cleansed and transformed and that these things can be forgiven and cleansed away because of his perfect atoning work on the cross. And you can receive cleansing and forgiveness and transformation so that you have an identity in the very being of who God is and his love, which is manifested in his holiness, out of which springs his mercy that reveals his forgiveness and that reveals the greatness of his love to you as an individual. And this is how we abide in God. The secret to abiding of God is by choosing to fear God and to recognize God's love first in his holiness in relation to us so that it causes a great humbling and a reverence and a turning in the heart to recognize the greatness of his love to us through his mercy, through his perfect atoning work. 
There's a scripture that says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk him. It is an ongoing process of intimacy with God. In fact, Christ describes this in uh, John. I don't know if I can turn to it quickly on here on my phone, but he, he describes in John uh, this relationship in John chapter 6. I'll try to turn to it here. Whether it's faster this way, I don't know. Probably is. John chapter 6. And um, I don't know exactly what verse. I'll just go here and <clears throat> try to get the right verse. Christ, is, I think it's towards the end of John chapter 6. And um, Christ describes this. He describes himself as the bread of life. And it's, I'm wanting to get a particular thing here. It's, it's way down towards, um, now I'm at verse 50. And he continually describes how we need a relationship with God where, where it's almost like we're eating God. Of course, we're not eating him in the sense of devouring him. We're eating him in the sense of having fellowship with him. And he goes on and he says, As the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. So the Son also lives by the Father. And he says, in the way I live by the Father, so you need to eat of me, so that you will live by me. Now, this is a great mystery, and I have a lot that I can go into on this that I've written on. But I will say this. It says in Isaiah 33 that the fear of the Lord is his treasure, and it's speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He treasures the fear of God because it is how you enter into intimacy with God. And so he recognizes in the Father the total purity of his being and the beauty that is out of it. And he's just filled with thankfulness as he sees that. And he just delights in it. And then he's, out of that thankfulness, he wants to respond and reciprocate it. And so he says to the Father, Father, I love you so much that I want to go into a great condescension and... Uh, become a perfect atoning sacrifice to bring forth before you a corporate bride that you can inherit. And the Father says, I love you, Son, so much that I want to bless you and as painful as it is to let you go, to let you go because I want you to experience inheriting a corporate bride with me. And so this love grows. It, I'm very, being very brief in that area. Now, what I want to point out is that I have received other passages of Scripture this week that are relevant to Zechariah 13. Now, that is through the casting of lots. And so I just want to point out a few of these. There's a good number. When I did Proverbs 23, the emphasis that was coming out was the danger of condoning evil. It says not to even eat with people that are wicked, because you'll end up 
vomiting the food, maybe because you'll get sick, or I don't, I'm not going to go into that, but that's a minor one. But the real big one was Isaiah 61, and I can't go into preaching for long on Isaiah 61. I just want to point it out and briefly point out the prophecies that are in Isaiah chapter 61. Maybe I'll use my little Bible here to do that. Isaiah 61. It's actually faster, I think. This little teeny Bible where the print is so small I can hardly read it. But in Isaiah 61, you also have a prophecy of the way things will be when the Messiah returns. And I did do some brief notes on it. So you can read this on your own, but it, Christ said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is those that mourn in the body of Christ and are brokenhearted over the captivity of sin that has caused division and held back the glory of God that shall receive the glory of God with great joy and praise. They are the ones that will restore the losses of past generations and even cause cities that became desolations to shine forth in restoration with the glory of God. They will be a remnant in the nation of Israel itself and also in the body of Christ throughout the world. Their offspring will be known among the world as the seed which God has blessed. All they do will be done out of truth, without hypocrisy. They will be clothed with the presence of God in great joy, with garments of salvation and righteousness. This will be like a bridegroom decked with ornaments and jewels for the bride. This in turn will cause the praise of God to spring forth in abundance through all nations that will usher in the fullness of God's glory and presence on the earth, that will usher in the millennial reign of Christ and the destruction of the Antichrist and its world system. That's basically what you have in Isaiah 61. I do not have time to go into that. But this is God, again, just confirming what he's seeking to say to the body of Christ this particular time in this Passover time. And I want to point out to you that there is coming another Passover, and you will find that in Isaiah chapter 26, the last two verses. And I find this Bible, the print is a bit too small for me to read, so I'm going to just take this other Bible and turn to Isaiah 26, the last two verses. Isaiah 26. And we read this. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. And it describes that in the book of Revelations, that when the Lord returns, men will seek death and they will not even be able to die. And they will see the glory of God and they'll call for the mountains and the hills to fall on them and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? But now you have the opportunity to receive the love of God. Do not reject who God is. He is love. Do not reject the manifestation of his love, which is so clear in his perfect atoning work, in his very self, in his son on the cross, the full expression of God in the time and space.
This is the message God is seeking to bring to the body of Christ. We in the churches need to humble ourselves when we start our meetings. We need to repent of control. Where we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to move through the body of Christ. We need to be conscious of Christ in our midst. It doesn't mean that the pastor still cannot speak. It, it means this, that as we get caught up in an intimate relationship of God out of true worship that comes out of humility, that there will spring forth genuine pure praise and the gifts of the Spirit in prophecy that will confirm the message. If the pastor is in the Spirit, he will preach a message and discover that what was prophesied was exactly what he was about to preach on. And I've seen it happen in certain meetings many times that I've been involved in where there was a deep moving of the Holy Spirit this way. And I do long for those meetings to come back. And I'm believing that God is going to be, begin to challenge people that have re, not repented of being denominational, whole denominations, to repent of being denominations and to come out of it and become the bride of Christ in these last days. He doesn't want a people with spots and wrinkles and denominationalism will not stand. Even there are people that deny that they're a denomination, but they are and practice a denomination because they set up certain issues and which they will not receive others as Christ received them. Only those that see the way they see on minors instead of the major issues of relationship with God. So we need to repent of divisions and be the restorer and repairers of the breach as it describes in Isaiah 61. The restore of the paths to dwell in, the paths where there's fellowship and intimacy with God. Paul said that God has so tempered the body of Christ together that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. What is that saying? It is saying this, that when we repent of control and we allow the gifts of the Spirit to move and we encourage them and facilitate them on each member of the body of Christ, God will pour out a more powerful gift on the ones that are not so charismatic and not so highly looked up to. So that the ones that are looked up to in the natural are humbled and they are not exalted and looked up to too highly. And that is what will defeat division. Because what is division? The root of division is pride. It says by pride comes contention in the word of God. And so here, when this happens in the body of Christ, the valleys can be raised up, the mountains can be brought down so that we're not conscious so much of who's leading the meetings and this person and that person, and we die to our identity in the leadership and in our identity to one another, and our identity is so much more in our relationship with God. And then all flesh will see the glory of God, and God will have a place where he can inhabit his body and come in fullness as the head over his body. 
And when he comes in the fullness of his glory, it is then that, as the word of God says, all saints will comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of God. It is with all saints that we will comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And when we, as individuals, and corporately are filled with the fullness of the glory of his presence, it will bring the greater works of God. It will bring the power and authority in the body of Christ that will shake the kingdoms of this world and usher in the return of the Messiah and of the corporate bride coming forth on the earth in preparation for the Messiah. And so we know that when the Lord returns, he will destroy the kingdoms of this world by a, by a mighty earthquake as described in Isaiah chapter 24. And in this description of this mighty earthquake, in Isaiah 24, we see that his glory comes forth because there are congregations in the midst of this earthquake that have come into such a relationship with God. It's a described in Isaiah 24, and it says this. It's describing this great earthquake and how everything is desolate. And it says in the midst thereof, in verse 14 of Isaiah 24, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord of Israel in the isles of the sea from the uttermost part of the earth. We have heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness. Woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that. We see that there are congregations on this mighty earthquake that causes all the cities of the nations to fall. When this mighty earthquake comes, they will be singing in the midst of the fires, glory to God, and the Messiah will return for his corporate bride, and Israel will see him set upon the Mount of Olives with ten thousands of his saints, and they will be married and corporately saved and birthed anew into relationship with God. So prepare yourselves to be a touchstone in your community for the glory of God to be able to inhabit your congregation by repenting of denominationalism, by repenting of control, and repenting of worldliness that has caused hardness in the heart so that there's a love for the world that has caused that hardness in the heart that has caused adultery in your churches where husbands and wives have divorced. Rather, come to one another and learn to wash one another's feet as it were with the word of God and husbands to humble themselves before their wives and to wash their feet and wives to humble themselves before their husbands and to wash their feet with the humility of Christ that comes out of the intimacy of knowing God out of the fear of God. That humility that is filled with his love and with his truth. God bless you. And I pray that this message burns into your heart and into the body of Christ that we come forth and we save our nation for the time has come when judgment will come to the house of God and he will begin to shake all that is shakable.
but it is also coming upon the nations. Is there time to turn back United States to God? Is there time to turn Canada back to God by us turning and humbling ourselves and entering into this place where we receive the headship of Christ in his fullness and glory to come into our midst? We must die to our identities of love with the world, including our relationships in the body of Christ with leadership and with one another. And then the glory will come. It means that we learn to be a house of prayer and out of that to have our meetings. We don't need to have pre-service prayer meetings. Make your church service a prayer meeting out of which will issue forth all the other ministries, including the preaching of the word by the pastors and others. Let us be those that become restorers of the breach, repairers of the past to dwell in. God bless you for listening and receiving this message. In Jesus' name, I look forward to fellowship in the future. Pray for me that God will provide the things I need so I can be more focused on doing what I'm doing and that he will open the right doors where only he will receive the glory and his will will be done.